Blog Talk Radio. Oh, good morning. I'm so excited to be back with you guys here at uh, Off the Shelf. I, I actually moved from the Philly down to the Atlanta, Georgia area a couple of weeks ago. So I was on the show was on hiatus, and we coming back with a very dynamic dual a uh, dual author team, <laughs> which we rarely have. For today's show, so what a great way to come back to off the shelf! I just want to welcome you guys to the show and wish you a happy, happy, blessed Thanksgiving. Because by the next Saturday show, Thanksgiving will be over, being that it's Thursday. So I hope that you all enjoy uh, spending wonderful time with family and friends, and don't overeat and overspend if you do go out shopping uh, for Black Friday. But but I wish you just a wonderful holiday. For those, we have listeners who've been with us well over a decade, and I truly, truly thank you. But to those who are tuning in for the first time and to our loyal listeners, I thank you for hanging in there while the show was on hiatus. So I really appreciate that and, and listening to the shows in the archive. But to those who might be coming over for the first time, I want to introduce myself because I listen to uh, online radio, and sometimes I wonder who is talking. So I want to introduce <laughs> myself. I'm your host, Denise Turney, and I used to always say that I was coming to you live from Philadelphia, but now I have to change it. I am coming to you live, and it is so gorgeous today from Atlanta, Georgia. I'm actually right outside of Atlanta. And so I'm back south, and I'm absolutely loving it, closer to my family, and excited about spending this Thanksgiving with them. Uh, Again, and I wish you and your loved ones, your colleagues, your family, your friends, happy holidays, and thank you. Thank you for your support. And now, as the holidays, they're they're right up on us, uh, and and I've got to get started. If you're looking for a great gift for yourself or your loved ones, Pick up a copy of my latest book, Love Pour Over Me. It is a great gift for book lovers everywhere. You're really going to enjoy it. I tell people, if you like mystery and romance, and if you really value relationships, you will love Love Pour Over Me. You'll learn a lot about yourself as you delve into what happens to the characters, and it will pull a lot of emotion out of you. There are high chase scenes and loads of entertainment that keep you hanging on as you explore and go through the changes that the characters, Raymond and Brenda and the other characters, go through, and as that even helps you to change. So please go get a copy of Love Pull Over Me. It's at, it's an online, it's an ebook and in print. You can get it online or offline anywhere, any bookstore, any library, or Walmart, Barnes & Noble, Amazon.com, you name it. If you don't see it on the shelf, just ask the clerk for it. Just say you want to get a copy of Love Pull Over Me by Denise Turney, and they can easily get you a copy because it's carried by the largest book distributors in the world. And now let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest, and our special guests today are Gracie Hill and Patricia Haley Glass. Both have been on Off the Shelf before. But this is the first time to our listeners that Gracie and Patricia have been on the show together at the same time. <laughs> now, to give you a little backstory on them, Gracie is an Arkansas native. She's also a member of the Chicago Writers Association, and she's enjoying that snow that they got this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> and she's the author, or she's the she's authored or co-authored several books, including Relentless, Sorrows of the Heart, The Kitchen Beautician, love that title, and Save, Sanctified, and Keeping My Secret, and Where the Brothers At. You can learn more about Gracie Hill and her books by visiting her online at GracieHill.com, and it's spelled G-R-A-C-I-E-H-I-L-L.com. That's one word, GracieHill.com. And our other guest, special, special guest today is an Illinois native. Patricia is a national best-selling author. She earned an MBA from the University of Chicago. And some of her novels include Unforgiving, Relentless, Nobody's Perfect, No Regrets. She's a writer, you can see. Her and Gracie, <laughs> Blind Faith, 
blessed assurance still waters, let sleeping dogs lie, the midnight clear, broken, destined, and humbled. Her book, Chosen, was nominated Best Christian Fiction of 2009, and No Regrets is an Essence Magazine bestseller. Blind Faith won the 2003 Romance and Color Award, BET New Spirit Book of the Year Award. And you can learn more about Patricia and her books by visiting her website at patriciahaley.com. They kept it easy. And that's spelled P-A-T-R-I-C-I-A-H-A-L-E-Y.com. Again, that's GracieHill.com and PatriciaHaley.com. And as co-authors, Gracie Hill and Patricia Haley's new novel is titled Redeemed. And the novel was released, you guys, this month. So it's hot off the presses. And we'll talk about Redeems and their other books during today's show. We want to welcome, welcome, welcome Gracie and Patricia. Thanks, Denise, for having us. <laughs> it's so good to have you. Morning. It's an honor to be with you. Two authors on the show, so it's exciting. I want to want to ask both of you, uh, and I'll, I'll start with uh, Patricia and Gracie. I'm going to switch back and forth who goes first. But what attracted you to novel writing? I want to ask both of you, uh, starting with Patricia. I I can say I wasn't even attracted. I just fell into it. I, I, you know, I, like you said in, in the intro, which um, you graciously did for us, I got my MBA in finance and 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 marketing and and my undergrad in engineering. So I really have been on the business side. I mean, that's my thing. I you know that's what I do, my day job, so to speak. So back in like the mid '90s or late '90s, when I I just sat down, and really just started writing. I mean, I was on a project where I was working like 60 hours a week as a project manager, and I was just looking for something to do. And so I just really just start writing. No, nobody's perfect. I didn't even know it was a book. So it wasn't like I'm not one of those people who say. You know, I always wanted to be a writer when I grew up. It, it was the farthest thing from my mind. I'm the, you know, the technical person. So um, I just started writing. And then as I grew, what it what it did, though, my writing allowed me to really grow in my faith with God because it, because writing is just something, you know, you're just by faith you're doing it, you know, that you can get the book done, that you're reaching the people that God wants, you know, to be reached, that they'll get something out of it, that they'll be encouraged. So for me, as I went on, it allowed me to understand my purpose in life, which is to be an encourager. And writing is just one of the tools that God's given me to fulfill my purpose. So I do it to the—I really do it to the glory of God. But it's—it's—it's um, it's, it's not a—it's not—I won't say a pastime. It's my ministry. That's what writing is for me. It's my ministry. So even though it's not something I plan on doing, I still, you know, took classes and want to get better and better because I want to make sure that I'm putting the best product I can out there. But it is my ministry. Oh, okay. How about you, Gracie? What what attracted you? It sounds like Patricia's and and uh, we've had guests come on and say they sort of just stumbled into it, and then other people say they knew from when they were a child that they were a writer. How, what attracted you to writing? It definitely was not anything that I desired to do or anything that I thought I would be doing, um, you know, early on as a child or growing up or anything. Um, it has become a passion for me because I just kind of, well, actually God gave me the title to my first book and every line in the book. It was not wow. anything that I, I focused on doing. You know, I was just sitting in church one day and God gave me the title to this book. I didn't even write the book until two years later. And when I sat down to write the book, you know, I didn't know how to write a book. I just started writing and God just gave me the words, and they just came, and they just came. I would wake up in the middle of the night, and words would just come out, and I would just have to write it down because I couldn't go back to sleep until I did. Um, and as I continued to write, you know, I, I, I just believed that it was what God was giving me. And another book came, and another book came, and another book came. And they were all well-received. Sales were great. And, you know, people have just often said that, you know, I just really um, appreciate how, the book spoke to me intimately, to my situation, to what God was taking me through. So I know it's something that God has, it's a gift that God has blessed me with, and it's for me to do for someone to be blessed. So it wasn't anything that I desired to do, but it's definitely a passion. Wow. Listen listen to both of you. So a ministry for both of you, your, your, your writing. Uh, I wanted to ask you, we know you both wrote 
books before you started writing as as a team. Uh, how how is it? I always think it's like too challenging. What's the process before we jump into uh, your, your books? What's the process that you guys use to, to co-author books? Do you does one of you like does one of you write say three characters and you do all the dialogue, all the everything that character does? One of you does that, and then another one of you takes on other characters. What's the process that you follow? You you want me to take let me take that, Gracie? Sure. Okay. I was gonna say we really we just come up with an outline for the story. Like we talked about the characters at the very beginning of the project and then we just come up with um like a synopsis, like what the story's gonna be about, like a one or two pager. Then we come up with an out turn that into an outline. That outline it could I mean, I don't know, our outlines are probably, you know, twenty, thirty pages and it really goes through each character each chapter. We write what the you know both of us work on that come up with the outline come up with the storyline. After that, we just start writing like you know um, let's say let's say I take the first I start writing I might do five chapters or however however long I want to write. Initially, we start off with basically like five chapters each, but each in the first book, Relentless. But time we got to redeem and we really are very comfortable with each other. We literally just write as, as much as we feel led to write at that time. You know, while we're in the story and the character is flowing. And then we stop and we pass on to the next the, the other the other person between back and forth between ourselves. So we just follow the outline. If there are things that need to be tweaked or changed, we'll do that. We may make some you know changes in the story, but it, I can say it is writing with Grace has been very seamless and smooth. I mean, we we just you know work well together. We are very open to the suggestions from one another, respect one another, and we have had no challenges. And I know that doesn't always happen. Um, as a matter of fact, for me. Before I've been doing this project, I was really willing to wait however long it took to get somebody to do this project because I wanted to make sure that it's somebody I could work with and that we had the right spirit and the right purpose for doing this and that we wouldn't have any, any issues. And it's been just a smooth, smooth process. Oh, and my even goodness. though the process is structured, and it is, it's absolutely a structured process, but what I enjoy about it is that we both have as much creative freedom as we want or need. So when we're writing and you're into that character, you're into that scene, you know, we can step away from the outline if we feel that that's the way the character is going. We really let the characters come to life in our heads, and we let the characters tell the story, you know, so we don't try to force it. It's it's a, it's a free-for-all. It's really a comfortable process, and we're very open to each other's feedback. So if I want to change something or if she wants to change something and Sometimes, you know, we'll take each other's idea and we'll kind of build on it, and then the idea is even a better idea. You know, the concept is even better. The storyline is better. The the dialogue is better. It's it's really been a blessing to work with someone that we work so well together, as Patricia said. Mm-hmm. You know, and I work I on other just... projects. Oh. Go ahead. I was say I work on other projects together where, where it wasn't as smooth. And I look now, you know, like obviously more seasoned, more experienced, but also it comes down to really putting, like, pride and ego aside and just saying, okay, let's write the best book we can together, respecting that both of us are bringing something to the table. And God, and, and we go in from the perspective that, you know, both of us are very spiritual women, and we walk by faith, and so God put us together to do this project. So because of that, it has to be good. It has to come out good because God only God only sanctions what he knows is going to win. He He puts us in a winning position, so we just have to humble ourselves and walk through it. And so our pride in those things were set aside. It's not who did this and how much of that. It wasn't. It's not even about that. It's about when we read through the book. Um, in the beginning, I could tell, like you know, Grace and I, our writing styles were, were a little different, and not much different. But by the time we got to the end of the first book, and we did well, go through writing and that year-long process of writing, editing, I can tell you, I can't tell which chapters I wrote, and she can't tell which chapters she wrote because we really allowed wow. God to blend us together and and go for one final product that we could both be proud of and that would glorify God. Well, I was going to ask you if readers could tell, like, oh, this is what Gracie is, <laughs> and then this is what Patricia is writing. Before we go into Redeemed, can you give us a synopsis? And I'm going to start with you, Gracie. Can you give us a synopsis of Relentless, is, and is it the first book in the series? Relentless is the first book in the series, and the book actually was number one on the Christian Fiction bestsellers list, and so is Redeemed. Congratulations. 
Yes, God is so awesome. And actually, redeemed is number one in more than one category. I think um, okay. as an ebook, um, Christian fiction, and what was the other um, category, Patricia? Yeah, um, ebook on the Kindle and on the Nook, and also you know just um, in the paperback, you know, just regular. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So God is just in control of the process. He absolutely is. Um, Relentless is a storyline that is fashioned after modern-day Paul in that the main character, Maxwell, he struggles with his um, relentless pursuit of the church and organized religion. He believes that the whole church forum is just uh, corrupt, that there is no one that's genuine. Everyone is designed to fleece the flock and he has a, a history with the church because he grew up in the church. His father was a um, deacon in the church and um, very prominent and um, held a position of authority in the church and sat on the board of directors. And he, his father ends up going to prison because he supported the pastor in what he did not know was an illegal uh, land scheme that ended up costing um, a lot of people all of their savings and um, people lost their homes, and he ended up going to prison. So did his wife for a short period of time. They even lost their college funds that they had set aside for their children. And Maxwell became very bitter and very um, angry, and he felt like his father actually cared more for the church and the ministry and the man of God than he did his family. Because if he hadn't, then his family would not have ended up, you know, in such a financial. Um, destruction, basically, because their lives were destroyed. They ended up having to move from their home and living in a two-bedroom apartment. Maxwell ends up leaving home and going away to college and just totally ostracizing himself from his family because he feels like, you know what, that's not life for me anymore. My dad didn't love us enough to take care of us. And so the book unfolds and you get to see, you know, how his anger and his uh, passion to pursue uh, the church unfolds because he's actually relentlessly pursuing every major ministry that he can. He's determined to tear them down, determined to expose them, determined for people to see that there's no real genuine people in the ministry. And as he's doing that, he's continuing to stay away from his family as much as he can. And um, Maxwell actually is not even able to maintain a relationship, a, a, a heartfelt relationship with a woman because his only desire in life is to bring down the ministry. So as the story unfolds, you get to see all of his flaws, the fact that he's not perfect, um, the fact that he struggles with his relationships. You get to see some of the challenges in the church, which there, I think the storyline is very, very real and people can relate to it. Because of those things, none of us are perfect. All of us have issues, whether it's in our family or in our church or on our jobs or, you know, with our siblings. We all have challenges and we all have flaws. Nobody is perfect. And although Maxwell is very successful because he's a prominent um, attorney, but at the same time, he's not happy. He can't find happiness. And nothing that he does brings him any peace, brings him any happiness. There's one person in the storyline that he really has a heart for, that he really loves. That he that person is kind of like the lifeline with him and his family because he's concerned about that person. So he can't just really shut his family out completely, although he really wants to. So you get to see all these different um, dramatic challenges and relationships that go on throughout the storyline. And the end of the book kind of brings you to a cliffhanger and kind of leaves you there so you – you you absolutely have to pick up Redeem so you know what happens to Maxwell and his parents and their relationship and even the pastor that ends up being the reason why there's so many issues in Maxwell's life. Wow. Now, Pat, can you tell us who who is Nicole? You know, every time I, when I'm doing these interviews, a guest will start to lead into the next question <laughs> without knowing it. It always happens almost at least once. Pat, can you tell us who who is Nicole and what impact, without giving the story away for those who haven't read Relentless, uh, because I don't know if Nicole, she may show up again in Redeemed, who is she and what impact does she have on Maxwell? 
Nicole is somebody who you threw me off a man because people I'm, I'm so not accustomed to people calling me Pat except when I'm at like you know around the family oh, they, okay. kid cousins you know my kid cousins oh, okay <laughs> no no it's, it's it's cool uh Nicole is somebody who is her and Maxwell and the Grace alluded to a little bit they have been fine in this in this kind of what do you call it arm's length relationship for a long time. She's busy. She's moving up the corporate ladder, and he's doing his thing. He's totally focused. He's made it clear to her that, look, you know, I don't mind. The companionship is cool, but, you know, I can't commit any more to you than just, you know, a little bit of time here and there because my whole focus is fulfilling my mission, which is to bring down these churches and these ministers. So she's cool with that until she has, and relentless, she has this um, near-death experience. She's in a uh, you know, in a, in a near fatal accident, and so she starts to look at things differently and starts to realize that life is passing her by. You know, she has all these promotions, she's making partner, but she doesn't have like children. She doesn't have a husband. She doesn't have any stability. So she wants to change things. Well, Maxwell is not interested in, in change. He's like, look, I told you from the beginning uh, what I'm about, and so she decides that she's going to pull away and do go do something different. And he's really surprised at it, but because he struggles with relationships, period with his family and others that he's like, you know what, fine, I, hey, I got to let it go. And he wants it, and relentless, he, you see that he's he's trying to act like it's okay, but he really does miss even that little bit of companionship. At least there was somebody who cared about him. So he, you lose that, and you see as we move into Redeem, you know, they, they've gone their own separate ways, and, you know, he's, he really misses that. It's kind of, kind of like a regret he has. He runs into her, and then um, he realizes that she's engaged now. She's uh, she's moved on, and so you know sometimes you don't realize what they say. You don't you don't miss your water till the well runs dry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know people say so. You know now all of a sudden Maxwell has a different perspective. But you know he's got a he's got a um, he's got a lot he got a, a tough hill to climb if he's going to try to woo her back because she's already engaged and getting ready to set the date. So um, Nicole is somebody she's a love interest. I'll just put it that way. Oh, and you know what? What you just shared. Because I know you both have been on before, but you just added a very interesting twist that she's actually now engaged. Mm-hmm. So now that really is what now you want to know. Okay, so what happens? How does this turn out? <laughs> now, now, how long, uh, Gracie, after you guys finished Relentless, did you start writing on Redeemed? Actually, um, the timeline is pretty swift. We we actually um, should have started probably sooner than we did, but um, I think maybe a, um, two two months later, three months later, we started writing Redeemed, and oh, so you did do we, it quickly. Oh yeah, yeah, and actually, both of our plates were full because we both work. Uh, I'm also an entrepreneur, and we have tons of things on our plates and calendars. And actually, I don't even know how we do it. Because we're both married, we both have families, we both have jobs, and but God absolutely is in control. Because you know, and I can imagine the same for uh, Patricia. But you know, we, we would be. I know that she's writing in the middle of the night because sometimes when we're writing, we're we're texting each other and and emailing each other, and I'm thinking, okay, well, I'll get a response in the morning. She shoots right back, or she'll email me something, and I'll respond right back. And we're both up in the middle of the night writing. And sometimes my husband was like, okay, you need to put it down. And stop because it's late. Because <laughs> so, you know, I went we, up right now, watching my shows. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, oh I'm, so you guys don't fool around. You only waited two months, Patricia. Are are because now you, you you've wet our appetites with Nicole. Are Maxwell and Nicole? Are they seeing each other at the start of Redeem? I don't want to get a story away. This is the thing with interviews. You don't want to keep people right. hanging. And if well, he, if they aren't, what, what's what's going on with them at the start of Redeemed? Okay, right. And really, like the start of Redeemed is the end of Relentless. So I can I can say I can talk about Relentless without really giving away what's in Redeem, right? Technically, so mm-hmm. at, the, at the at the onset of Redeemed, they they are not seeing her. They you know she's moved on. You don't even hear about her in the in the in the early parts of the book, except for when Maxwell is reflecting. He's starting to. He's made some decisions, even with the whole, you know, the, this, this deacon that's ended up in prison, the minister, and, you know, he's starting to second-guess himself 
you know, based on some feedback he's got from, some, from other people and some other evidence, he's starting to second-guess himself. So he's questioning several things in his life. And one is his willingness to let Nicole go so easily. And so he's he's thinking about that every now and then you'll hear in the early part of the book, you hear about her. So when she pops up, they have a random meeting. And I'll just say that. I'll say, you know, he's a lawyer, so it's not, it wouldn't be surprising or shocking if I told somebody that he met, he ran into her at the courthouse. You know, they ran to one other than the courthouse. And, and um, you know, then he starts to really think about it. And it's at a time, it comes at a time when she could use a friend and he could use a friend. So it's mm. it's, it's one of those kind of things, yeah. What, okay, he's an attorney. What does she do? She is a she works in the corporate arena. She is a consultant, and she is you know going for partner at one of the consulting firms. So she's uh she's young, but she's very vibrant in her in her profession, and she's already been promoted umpteen times, and she's just you know like the star the star child in the in the um in the firm. Before we go on into, I want to ask uh, Gracie some questions about Maxwell's Law Firm. Can you tell us, for those who didn't read Relentless, how did Nicole, so Nicole's in the corporate environment, Maxwell's an attorney, how did they meet? That'd they be very interesting. <laughs> they actually met um, fighting over a parking space. Oh! They actually pulled up. Um, in in the backstory of the uh, of the book, they pulled up at the same time in a a parking space, and so they were, you know, the conflict was over the parking space, and he realized then, you know, that she was intelligent, she was attractive, she was articulate, she was strong headed, and you know, she wasn't a pushover. She was someone that he felt, you know, right off the top, she was his equal, so to speak, and she was someone that you know he felt that he could be interested in. Fighting over a parking spot. <laughs> and, and you know, you know what's interesting? I'm going to say, as you, you know, as our writing evolves, you know, the more books you write, the better you get. It's like writing, you know, cooking. You know, the better you, mm-hmm. more you make that sweet potato pie, the better you get. But when you have details like that, like you can give the backstory, you know, put little pieces, nuggets in a book, and you can give people, you have to think about all the pieces, how, you know, all the components so that, and put it in there so when the reader reads it, you've given them the full story. They don't ha- you don't want your reader to leave with questions or with confusion. And that's when you've done yeah. that, you've hooked them. You make them feel like they're really, like they know these people, like these people really exist somewhere. They, they you know, I've gotten emails in the past like, I know you know this guy. Who is, you know, who are these, who are some of my past characters? <laughs> like, you, I had a friend who said, you know I'm single. How come you haven't introduced me to this guy? Come on now. Like, oh, my goodness. Ain't not real. <laughs> How how are things, uh, Gracie? How are things at the law firm? And I, and I'm looking more at the start of Redeem when it's kicking off. How how are things at Maxwell's law firm? Maxwell's firm is um, very successful. He has more than enough clients. He's turning down clients. He has um, a work environment that he is very much in control of. One of the characters in the story that really um, speaks to some of the conflict and some of the intrigue in the storyline is uh, his assistant that used to work for him. She's no longer with him. She actually quit um, based on a huge blow-up and conflict that he and this woman had um, in the story of storyline of Relentless. Uh, her uncle is actually the deacon who ends up going to prison and is um, some of the conflict in Redeemed as well. Um, but she was his assistant. She was uh, very uh, effective and did a great job. He's had a very hard time finding someone who works as well as she did and someone who um, knows him as well, someone who can really, you know, think out of the box and really know what he wants before he asks for it. So he's really struggled with that. Um, so his assistant that he has working in his office now doesn't do quite as good of a job, so he, he's really challenged with this person, so they end up having some conflicts. And his 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 private investigator is someone who is somewhat of a friend, um, but at the same time, you know, he's his, his uh, professional um, colleague, and he has some conflict in the storyline as well because he, in the office with uh, Maxwell, you know, they do a lot of um, bantering back and forth because this investigator 
even in Relentless, struggled with whether the deacon and the bishop were even guilty of the charges that they were trying to bring against them, the case that Maxwell was trying to build. So as Maxwell, you know, he spends a lot of time in his office, actually more time at work than he does at home. And he really makes the people that he works around almost feel uncomfortable because he's he's so demanding and he's so mm. efficient and he wants everyone to be, you know, almost perfect. And him and his assistant, you know, they, they have this conflict because he's telling him, hey, I'm not perfect. I'm not the assistant that worked for you before, you know, and it's unfair of you, you know, to hold me up to her light, but I'm doing the very best job that I can. And you must have thought that I was, you know, able to do the job because you hired me and you told me that you were impressed with me. So he, he makes people feel uncomfortable because he's such a perfectionist, and he wants people around him that quest, that are that aren't really um, focused on um, God, people who don't mind working on Sundays. And, you know, that's the, those are the kind of people that he wants around him because that's who he is. That's his main focus. That's his commitment. It's work. Work has to be the priority no matter what's going on in your life. If I need you to work 15 hours today, then that's what I need you to do. Mm. I think Gracie's in my head because she keeps leading into other questions. I want to ask you, Pat, but Pat, so Maxwell's doing good. He has to actually turn away work. Is he still trying to bring down pastors at mega churches in Redeemed? Why or why not? And then also tell us, what are some of the, like, the predominant types of clients? Does he handle, uh, like, medical malpractice? Does he handle, does he work with very wealthy people with divorce settlements? What are the dominant type of cases that he takes on, one, two? Is he still going after these pastors? Well, actually, the only the only clients Maxwell takes are those that have had some type of infraction or something happens to them bad in the church. You know, he oh. I mean, he's notorious. His cases are all, the majority of his, his bread and butter are sexual harassment, you know, somebody who feels like they, you know, their money was, um, you know, you know that they were um, wrong. Their money was inappropriately used, or that they were swindled out of their money. So he's constantly going. And sometimes, you know, it's one of those those situations where people come to him. But he also, you know, there may be somebody that he heard about, or there's he'll he'll decide he's going after a ministry or a pastor, and then he will have his investigator, or he will go and dig into that ministry until they find something. And you know, you know, if you dig into anybody's past or situation long enough, you're gonna find you may find something. So. Mm-hmm. He's constantly going after these ministers. That's his his bread and butter is is finding all those little things that you hear about in, in churches and the ministries and exposing them and basically taking them to court and, and trying to break them financially because he's not worried so much. His focus is not sending them to prison. In the relentless, that was that's not the norm. He doesn't go after them trying to get them sent to prison. He goes after their wallet, after their money because remember his whole thing started back when he was a kid that his parents lost their money and he feels like his whole life was changed and shattered. Because his parents, you know, blindly followed this minister and, you know, he took their money and then and they ended up in prison and all that. So, yeah, he's always going after um, clients who may be willing, but some even aren't, aren't so much willing, but he will push them along. Like once he gets them in, their, in his net on his hook, he's going to reel them on in. Wow, he's really dealing with a lot of unforgiveness. Gracie, can you introduce all our off-the-shelf listeners? This is why I think you're in my head, Gracie. Can you introduce off-the-shelf listeners to Garrett, who is Maxwell's private investigator? Tell us what he's like, what he and Maxwell's relationship is like. Sure. Um, Garrett is someone that Maxwell has had a professional relationship with for several years. He has learned to have confidence in Garrett and uses him exclusively uh, at this point because he is so good at what he does. Uh, Maxwell uh, Garrett, excuse me, is very, he's very strong-willed himself. His business has become very successful as well. Um, Not as much so as Maxwell, but he's definitely doing well. He does whatever Maxwell needs him to do pretty much. But he and Maxwell have had some conflicts because Garrett is, again, wondering did this pastor really do what he ended up going to prison for? He doesn't believe, he never believed that the deacon 
was guilty of what he ended up going to prison for. He felt like he was just kind of caught up in the the masses of what was going on because he was involved in the church, because he was on the board of directors, because he was, you know, responsible for signing some um, legal documents and things. He just kind of got caught up, but he never believed that the deacon knew what was going on with, you know, the illegal uh, selling of uh, prescription drugs in the ministry. Um, he believed that this man came to Maxwell and told Maxwell what he felt like was going wrong in the ministry, that the, that there was some things happening and there there had to be something that was illegal going on and he didn't want the church to be ruined because of what a couple of people might have been doing. So he wanted this addressed. So he, he trusted um, Maxwell and he went to Maxwell. So Garrett felt like, well, if he was guilty, if he was responsible, he never would have brought this to light. And because of the information that the deacon shared with Maxwell, that cinched the case for Maxwell. So Garrett really struggled with that. And when Maxwell wanted Garrett to just kind of drive really hard on building the case against the next minister, Garrett, they really had a conflict about that. Garrett just flat-footedly said, you know what, there's some things that I'm going to do and some things that I'm not going to do, and I'm not going to cross that line because I'm not going to be responsible for sending someone to prison that I don't feel is guilty. We, we've we got to be um, straightforward. This has to be done right. You know, I, I'm going to stand on my integrity. So he and Maxwell kind of have some conflicts, and he actually makes Maxwell second-guess himself almost because he starts to wonder, too, well, you know what, did we do this right? Or, you know, Maxwell even pulls out a whole box of evidence and, and, and depositions and, and some of the um, work that they had done on this case that ended up sending this deacon and this minister to prison, and he goes back over it. He pours himself back over it, wondering, you know, did we actually do the right thing? So I think Garrett actually ends up kind of being the person that makes Maxwell question himself and kind of look at things from a different different perspective. Okay, okay. Well, thank you for letting – so they they knew each other probably before Maxwell started the law firm, or their relationship, does it go back to, you said several years, does it go back to college, does it go back before that, or just – when Maxwell just started to hire years of them working together. Mm-hmm. Just several years oh, okay. of them working together. All right. Pat, Pat how uh-huh. does Maxwell, what does he do? I mean, Patricia, what does Maxwell do to cross Mrs. Burton? What does he do to get on her bad side? Mrs. Burton? Yes. <laughs> well, the the wife of the deacon. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And now the, this is and redeem and redeem the you know I hesitated because I know you know the early part there's obviously something that happens to the deacon that um you know that that's not a very good thing actually and so the wife I and mean, she's she's angry she's just angry because you know obviously Maxwell has changed her whole world you know he has he has she blames him. And the, I want to say to the same degree, but the same anger and bitterness and resentment that he has, he has now, you know, created that, deposited that in somebody else. And now she's angry and bitter, and she, you know, she wants him, you know, she really wants him to, to, to suffer, and she wants him to, you know, feel the brunt of what she's feeling because she has two sons that, that you know, that she has to now take care of because her son, her husband's in prison. And um, and she's not willing to n- just let it go as maybe some of the other people that he's wrong have. Can, you know what? That brings up another question and a good point. He is so driven to, uh, and there's something going back to his childhood. You would think he could just deal with it with that one church or that one pastor, but no, he it's like a, it's, it's become like a virus. It's like everybody who even represents anything in the ministry now he wants to attack he's like blind with this uh this this driven this relentless this drive to just not the person who really and you you know what when you when you look at like what's going on in the news with terrorism or somebody goes in and shoots up a school or something it's really generally probably one person they're upset with and they just go on this mass it's like this a mass attack. Like I got to take out any and everybody. 
that even reminds me of this person. Which uh, are there other people other than the deacon's wife who they, that Maxwell is just unforgiving. It's that hardness in him. It's a blind hardness that they take that on, and they're like, okay, you know what, Maxwell? Now I'm coming after you. Right. And isn't that what happens? Like, you know, you be around a person who, who who just can't get past something, and you and when you're around them, it's like a weight. You know, you feel it. It's like they could be happy, and then something, somebody says something or does something, and it triggers that, that sensitive spot, and then, they, you know, they're off on a tangent or whatever. And, you know, and it's – but isn't it true even in real in our in our life, like – you hear people who they had a bad situation with like a church or with a pastor or somebody or whatever, and then the next thing you know they they putting down all churches. They don't want to give them any money because all the you know all the preachers taking the money and spending it on new this and new cars and that, and they they turn against the entire church when it was really you know probably an incident with just one person or one situation. You know somebody could be in a relationship and it doesn't work out and then they don't now they ban all women of that of that whatever that ethnic group is they don't want to have nothing to do with any of those women or a woman don't want to do with any of those kind of guys and it's it's just they make it so broad when really it's just that one little person that you need to deal with or set that person aside or that situation and and so but so in the book who who are they any people who are now uh coming after Maxwell. It sounds like he's he's staying on the offensive. He never has to go on the defense. And I would wonder why at none of these churches do people come together and say we're going to form a group and we're going to go after him. That doesn't happen. Well, it's interesting that you ask that question because there's there is actually uh, a point in the book where someone is uh, pursuing Maxwell. He has no idea who it is. He's getting ah. prank phone calls. He's getting um, messages in the mail. You know, okay. someone's threatening him. And because Maxwell has done so many people um, harm or brought down so many ministries and had so much impact in so many lives, who knows who this? He actually even gets something delivered to his office, and okay. the person had just left the office. So Maxwell you know, runs down the corridor, jumps on the elevator, runs downstairs and actually runs through the door of his office building and sees the person at the end of the block. He can't, you know, tell who it is, but the person actually, you know, points an imaginary gun at him and pulls the trigger and jumps into a cab and, you know, drives off. So there, there's definitely some conflict in the story that, that kind of gives you some intrigue and makes you wonder who this is so the reader can, you know, kind of decide who they think it might be. And then, of course, you want to get to the end of the book so you can see who it really was. Right. You, know, you, can see those, you know those gangster yeah. movies where there will be, uh, you know, somebody will kill somebody and then, you know, at the end of the movie, you know, the main character gets killed, but then it will be, you know, his grand, the person's son or grandson who was a little kid at the time and now it's a, it's a, you know, they've grown up or whatever and it's the last person you would expect, but it's like another generation or two down that gets revenge that's it, 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 something along those lines that it's, it's, it wouldn't be who you would suspect not necessarily something he's ah. definitely directly violated but it could be a family member or somebody who's been impacted by what maxwell has done so when yeah. you start to add that many people you have no idea he has no idea who it could be because he's he's messed up so many lives you know yeah. so he's on he, he does go on the offense and on the defense, and if we look at, if we write, you know, at some point we write the, a few more books in the series, one of the ones would be in our group would be this book called Revenge, and that's basically where he's uh, on the defense. Yeah, and you, 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 when you look at, and then again looking at it as a, as a uh, something that impacts us in our everyday lives, we, a lot of times we look at a news story and we think this, we're so detached from it, but it, we're not. And we can, in small ways, these things go on in our lives. Somebody, we perceive somebody injured us, I'm going to get you. And then everybody who seems or looks like you, every ism from racism to ages from the sexism, it's like one person I perceive they injured me. Now I think everybody's like that, and I'm going to get you, or I'm going to stay away from you. And then you don't realize how that's reshaping you. That's actually changing you. Like what Maxwell now, you're not becoming such such a a beautiful sight yourself, but you don't see right. that. You're so blind. And don't you limit your world? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. You, 
Yeah, because you're limited. Because you have, you know, when you have, when you're carrying something against somebody for a long time, have you? I don't know if you guys, I don't know if you guys can relate to this, but you ever been in like a group? You know, it would be family, it could be whatever, and certain people that you know have something that's not right between them. Everything's cool until they both enter the room together. And if yes. you're cool with both of them, you're like, oh, now you got to figure out, know. you know, how to position yourself. <laughs> you know what I mean? How you can't be talking to them too much. You can't say this. You can't say that. It's yes. like, like all of a sudden the tension just drops down yeah. like a blanket on the room. Yeah, and, and and that will probably happen on Thursday all around the world where people yep. <laughs> yep, <laughs> exactly. Uh, and that will happen between <laughs> relatives. So two relatives will walk in and they'll be like, oh, here yep. we go. Uh, uh, does Maxwell finally learn, and you don't have to answer it like the, a definitive question, but I mean answer, but does he learn or start to learn to forgive? I think in the in Redeemed there's definitely um, several opportunities where Maxwell has to look at things differently get some of the decisions that he's made, some of the things that he's done, and really scrutinize those things and, and, and really decide, you know, did I make the right decision? Maybe there's some things about me as a person that I need to change. And I, and I, that's one of the things that I like about the book because it really does give the reader the opportunity to do some introspection. And none of us are so perfect or so right or so good that there's nothing that we need to change. Mm. All of us have probably someone in our lives that we need to forgive for something. If it was something that they did to us 10 years ago and we're still holding on to it, we know that that's limiting. We know that that impacts who we are today. And even how we treat people, it impacts how Mm -hmm. we treat people. And sometimes when you're unforgiving, even sometimes we need to forgive ourselves and we don't realize that. Mm -hmm. And when we're unforgiving to other people, that person may have shook it off, and they've moved on. But that thing still has you bound. The stronghold is on you. It's not on mm. that person. And mm. we, need to, we need to realize that in our lives. And Maxwell is, at the end of the book, he's, he's faced with so many different things that are going to happen, some, some dynamic things are going to happen in his family. You know, there's going to be someone who actually um, really is struggling, even for life. And Maxwell really has to look at life and himself, his family dynamic, and who he is. He has to look at it differently, and he has to face life on life's terms, not his. Wow, you know what? Vulnerable. You you see that he's a a human being. That he's he has a vulnerable side. Even as tough as he is, there is one person. There is a person on earth that he really does love. And you got to read the story to see who it is. Um, but he that he really does love, and that he's willing to do anything. I mean, he would give up everything that he has for this particular person. And none of what he has, uh, you know, that he's gained or aspired to be, can help him now. And it turns out, you know, because we write faith-based fiction, you know, the one the one place that he's going to be forced to turn or at least consider is, you know, somebody's willing to pray for him. Somebody's really willing to support him, even though he's done this person wrong. This person is still willing to be there for him. And Maxwell, you know, is looking for whatever works. Look, he he doesn't believe in prayer, but look, if somebody wants to do it, and you know, that's gonna, you know, if he thinks that might help or just give him a, a put some positive energy, he's willing to take it. And you see the vulnerable side of Maxwell, and that no matter how tough you are, you know, life is you're gonna have to deal with life, and it's not always gonna be on your terms. And you're gonna be have to at some point needs. Everybody on this earth needs somebody, even if it's just you need somebody to get here. You got to, you know, you got to at least have a, right. a mother to yes. get here, a father, mother, mother and father to get here. So everybody yep. needs somebody. Yes. And you, and I would hope that as readers keep reading books in the series, that they not only get so into the character, but at some point start to see where I actually do that too. And then mm-hmm. think about, you know, some changes that they can make in their life. How many books... Uh, do you guys plan or do you not know yet? Will you not know to the end? Because I think it was uh, Patricia, you I interviewed, and you said you knew this was the last book in the series. It was either you or another author who wrote a long series and said the readers wanted more, but they knew this was it. Do you guys, is that is that the approach that you guys are taking, or do you know right now we're only going to write five books or ten books in a series? I don't think we know. I mean, I know in my Mitchell family series, I, I we did talk about that Denise earlier in the year, and 
I wrote the seventh book, and that was it. I know people wanted more books, but I knew that that was for me. That was the time to just, you know, let the characters rest. And I won't say that they won't have a reunion back some years from now, but I knew that that was that was it for me. But Gracie and I writing this series, you know, we've written two, and there's some there's some more books we can write in this series, you know, and we um, and I'm sure that I'm I, I imagine that we will. Not we're not a hundred percent sure, but even the way Redeem ends, if the if if it stopped right now. You know, you would have a complete story. Um, do people always want more? That's yeah, and we're we're happy. We're happy that they like the book enough to want to keep reading. But mm-hmm. that's my take on it, Gracie. Would you want to add anything to that? Originally, when we started writing the series, we had envisioned that there would be four books in the series, and there may be those four books, as Pat Patricia said, we don't know yet. But there is um, a project that we're about to embark upon. It's going to take a little bit of a, a, a left turn and kind of take a different pathway with a different storyline and different characters and, you know, a different plot. It's going to be very intriguing, something um, very different, um, but definitely um, a page turner and something that people will want to read. So we're, we're definitely going to continue to, to work on a project. And as we finish this project with these two um, books, we don't know how many books they're going to turn out, but I think that there will be some more. Yeah, you just told us about revenge. you gotta, <laughs> you got to do at least that one, at least that one. Now, we know for this is a question that I'm going to start out with, with uh, Patricia and then Gracie for both please to answer. We know writing a book is the first step. Then you have to get the word out. And there are so, oh, my gosh, there are so many people writing and publishing books today. In the last 15 years, it has just more than quadrupled, it seems. Mm -hmm. Have you found an approach that helps you to get, like, double the results, get very good results, for your marketing efforts. Like you can blog, you can do press releases, but if you do the wrong press release distribution service, you won't get as much out of it. What have you found that works for you to get the word out about your titles? And I'm going to start with Patricia, and then I want Gracie, if you don't mind answering as well. Well, I still, you know, over the years, you know, all the book signings and events and things have, you know, pulled together, a, you know, a, a mailing list. So, you know, I definitely, when the book comes out, I always send out like an, you know, an e-blast to the mailing list, which is, you know, uh, th- you know, thousands of emails. And so I also do um, make sure that there are all kinds of uh, what you call marketing promotions that you can do now that e-blasts who have, you know, groups that have hundreds of thousands of e- uh, like Good Girl Book Club that focuses on, you know, faith-based books. I use um, Ella Curry. She has um, the you know, Black Pearl, she has um, all kinds of things. You can do an aud- you do the audio on the phone. You like the video card. You do um, an, e- an e-blast. You do um, – I also use um, Black Christian Book Promotion, which is one of my favorites because they do the press release. They send out to their, their mailing list. They do all kinds of wonderful um, e-blasts. So you buy some of the promotions. And then even Facebook now. I mean, Facebook is like – it's like you get the free version of the people that are on your list, but then and then things get passed on. But you can also do some extra, pay a few more bucks, and do some marketing on there. And it's just you know now it's really one of those things where you don't even have to leave your home and do the kind of promotion and reach thousands and thousands of people um, like it used to be in the past. You had to do a lot more footwork and legwork. So it's with with the, with the internet now. I mean, my it, it's so much easier to reach people. Mm-hmm. And once you build up a fan base, you you know, those people, look, they'll, they're hounding you down. If they're not online, they're almost like knocking at your door saying, you know, when's the next book? You know, when's the book coming out? So, you know, you know, you build up a a, a rapport with people. Okay. Gracie? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think, too, uh, social media is just unbelievable um, the way the impact that it has and, and the the opportunity to reach so many people. And at the same time, I think we have to be consistent with whatever marketing that you're doing. And then when you're building relationships with people, people really want you to respond to them. So, you know, I get a lot of emails, um, and I respond to every one of those emails, you know, and I let people know that I appreciate them reading the book. And I think reaching out to book clubs is effective as well. Um, A lot of times people – they they invite us out to be a part of their book club meeting. 
Um, they want that author to come and talk about the book. They really enjoy that. And I think just being consistent with whatever your marketing strategy is. And, and when we wrote the book, we actually sat down and did a marketing strategy for each book. So we were consistent to what we knew worked for us. And, you know, we utilized those avenues and we are trying to be as diligent as we can with doing something on a regular basis. I'm sure Patricia does as well. You know, we're sending out emails on a consistent basis. You know, we use Facebook and Twitter, um, all those things. And, of course, uh, our individual websites as well because I actually have um, a blog on my website and and people are responding there as well. So those those tools are are very effective. And when people know that you are going to respond back and that you're consistent and that you – you know, respect and appreciate your book because, as you said, there's just thousands and thousands and thousands of books that come out every year. And when people are faithful and loyal to you and they're they're buying every book in your series and they're responding and they want to know when's the next book coming out, you know, we appreciate that and, and we want people to know that we do appreciate that. And okay. being on shows like uh, yours, Denise, is very, I mean, that's key too. That's like, that's the whole Blog Talk Radio is like a whole venue. You know, that's that's an awesome opportunity as well. We only have five minutes, and I have so many other questions to ask you guys. Um, I'm trying to think which ones don't have much longer. What major you've had good questions too. Oh, thank you. What 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 major lessons did you learn? And we'll go with Gracie first, and then Patricia. What major lessons did you learn while writing your very first novel that you continue to use today? I pray before I write anything. I do my praise and worship. I give God honor and praise. And then I pray for God to just lead me and guide me, give me what to say, because I really want people to be encouraged um, by what I write. I want people to know um, that God is a source of strength and encouragement no matter what we are enduring in life. We all have challenges, and everyone needs a source of strength. And I know that God can be that. And I want people to get that in my writing. I want people to to be able to feel like they can really touch the characters and that the things that they're reading about are things that really they can relate to and that God can be that source of strength for them. So I pray before I write anything. Okay. Patricia? And I I would say, you know, because um, it was a faith-based book, my first one, Nobody's Perfect, way back then. But I can say the one thing that I've learned is that I can just trust God through the process, but that the words that he gives me, even in a fiction novel, can really change somebody's life, can really encourage them and bless them. And so I realized that I learned early on that what I put in that book, I have to just trust God and, you know, pray and let him let Him write it for me because it's going to, people are going to read it and it's going to have an impact on their life. Okay. Where can off-the-shelf listeners who listen live today via the phone, the however they're listening. There's so many different ways to join Off the Shelf. But how can Off the Shelf, though they listen to the archives, where we get the majority of our listeners, but how can Off the Shelf listeners get copies of Redeemed, Relentless, and your other books? All of your major um, bookstores, the books are national release, so, you know, Barnes & Nobles, anywhere you, you purchase books, uh, the online venues, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, all of those online venues, also from our individual websites as well, and they're also available as an e-book. And that's, for the websites, again, you guys, that's GracieHill.com, G-R-A-C-I-E-H-I-L-L.com, and PatriciaHaley.com, P-A-T-R-I-C-I-A-H-A-L-E-Y.com. Uh, can you tell us which social networks that you're on and how folks can find you online? I'm on Facebook, author Patricia Haley, um, Patricia Haley Glass, or author fan page of Patricia Haley. And so just do Patricia Haley to find it. GracieHeal.com. And I'm also on Twitter, author GracieHeal.com. Okay, we want to thank all, we want to thank Patricia Haley, Essence Bestseller award-winning author, and Gracie Hill, a gifted, committed, and talented author for being here with us today. They are the co-authors. The book just released this month, Redeemed, so it's hot off the presses. Please go support them. Gracie, again, at GracieHill.com. 
and her name is spelled G-R-A-C-I-E-H-I-L-L.com, and PatriciaHaley.com, P-A-T-R-I-C-I-A-H-A-L-E-Y.com. We thank them for being with us and wish them a happy Thanksgiving, and them and their families and loved ones. And, again, I wish each of you a happy Thanksgiving for those who uh, celebrate the holiday because I know we get listeners from around the world. As I always tell you, you are incredible, you are awesome, you are amazing, and I hope that one day you really, really wake up to see that. Go out and create a fabulous day for yourself. See you back here next Saturday, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Please tell somebody else, tune in to Off the Shelf, Saturdays, 11 a.m. New York City Time. See you next Saturday. Bye for now. Thank you, Patricia and Gracie. I'll shoot you an email. Thank you. Thank you so much.